Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Councillor Terry Whitehead is going on a listening tour to hear why Hamiltonians support the LRT project. Elon Musk has shown interest in acquiring the closing GM plants. And critics are arguing that new legislation from the Ford government will open up development in the Greenbelt. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One Hamilton City Councilor, that would be Ward, Council, or Ward 14 Councilor Terry Whitehead, has decided he wants to do what he calls a listening tour to see why people are supporting the LRT. Not argue why he is against it, but just to listen. That would be an interesting exercise. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer, and for uh, uh, ever from day one a strong proponent of uh, the LRT project. Ryan, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Listen, with all the debate and all the information that's out there, do we still need listening tours here? Well, in the case of Councillor Whitehead, I guess I would say better late than never. Okay. (laughs) You know, it scares me that he's been a city councillor since 2003, and he's voted literally dozens of times to move this LRT project forward, and now he doesn't understand why we're doing it. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. Well, it's it seems, uh, as you say, a little too late uh, in, in my books about this. I mean, because anything that you, we need to know about this project is pretty much common knowledge and public knowledge, isn't it? Sure, yeah. I mean, if, if anybody uh, with a good faith interest in learning about why we're building this project uh, can can fairly easily find out. Certainly somebody who has literally been been handed... Uh, all of the city reports, all of the Metrolinx reports, and has been, been he, you know, he should be the most well-informed person in the city, other than the engineers actually working on this. So it's, um, it's, it's a little bit disturbing that he feels like he needs to go through this exercise. It feels um, a lot like yet another media stunt coming from a councillor who really likes to keep his name in the papers. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe he um, genuinely wants to try and, and figure out... Uh, how he ended up in the alternate dimension that he seems to think that he's in, while every organizational uh, you know group in the city, you know, for business groups, environmental groups, social justice, transportation, you name it, have all uh, converged around this project. I mean, this is the most well-supported project in the city's history. We've never seen like kind of the same confluence of, of of interests from you know across the political spectrum from different parts of the city, uh, interested in different issues, who all recognize the common benefit that this is going to have for the city as a whole. Well, I'm sure you read the piece, uh, Andrew Dreschel's piece in the Spectator today. I, I certainly did, and uh, I, I concur with you. By the way, that maybe it is time that he sat down and listened to some of these people because the conclusion he seems to have come to so far, anyway, uh, is that the allure for the project is simply the symbolism of the thing. Uh, he's missing the mark here, Ryan. Oh, sure. I mean, that, that's an absurd, an absurd conclusion to draw. Uh, it's, I mean, In other words, that kind of sounds like we want a shiny toy. Well, sure. And, it, and it's, it's yet another way uh, to kind of dismiss and discredit and undermine the argument for LRT, right? You can't attack it on its merits, so you attack the credibility of the people who are, are advancing there. You say, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see the value. Therefore, the people who do must just be, you know, they must like the fact that it's a shiny thing. And that's, it's insulting. Uh, it's wrong. Um, you know, it betrays his own unwillingness to really engage with the tangible argument for this thing. But it raises a broader question, and I think you and I have had this discussion over the last number of months, if not years, uh, about whether or not there actually is a clear understanding of, of the benefits 
uh, of, of LRT and why we want to move forward on this. And because I've heard all sorts of, well, obviously this thing here that it's a nice little, you know, shiny project, a nice little toy. Uh, others are simply saying, well, you know, the province wanted to have this done in other cities and they're ramming it down Hamilton's throat. I mean, I've heard all sorts of things like that. But I don't know that the public at large uh, has a, a grasp of what's going on. We know the information's out there, but uh, I'm, I'm suggesting that maybe some of the proponents anyway have not done a very good job of actually articulating those those benefits. That's a fair point. And, and certainly, uh, I think uh, people in the community who have been supporting this project for a long time um, you know, you always, you know, I'm always questioning myself. I'm always second guessing myself. I'm always asking, could we have done more? Could we have done a better job? Could we have, uh, you know, boiled this down better? Uh, but a, a large measure of responsibility for this also falls on the leaders of our city, yeah. uh, including Councillor Whitehead, who has, you know, a fiduciary and I would argue a moral responsibility to understand and explain and promote this policy, which he himself has voted for dozens of times. I want to keep driving that point home because it's something that really seems to upset him that when he gets called out on the fact that he has consistently supported this project in his votes while speaking in an undermining and confusing and misleading way in his comments you know so there's a real um there's a double standard there you know councillor whitehead if his constituents don't understand this project very well that is his failing and and it's the failing of our municipal leaders who have really done a very poor job of explaining and defending this when you contrast how Waterloo Region has done in terms of their communication strategy, it's been a lot more effective because they're actually aligned around getting it done right. Part of the reason for that, though, is that uh, the message from City Hall, and I mean that in the broadest of terms, essentially comes from the councillors. I mean, there is not much really of a, of a, a public relations or, 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 or media uh, office in the, in the City Hall. There used to be, but a lot of that power has been taken away and given to the individual councillors as they've increased their budgets. So, uh, you know, to his point, uh, an awful lot of the information that uh, perhaps uh, some of uh, Councillor Whitehead's constituents got is through his lens. Uh, so, I mean, you know, where's, there's, there's a lot more subjectivity than objectivity in a lot of that stuff that gets mailed out from all of the councillors. Well, sure. And, uh, you know, last year or a couple of years ago, Councillor Whitehead had one of his staffers uh, whip together a big 58 or a 60-page LRT quote-unquote report, uh, which, you know, it looked as though somebody just Googled uh, why LRT sucks and then just dumped a bunch of that stuff into an article. I mean, it was an absolute mess. Uh, there's a, uh, a postdoctoral researcher at McMaster Institute for Transportation and Logistics whose paper was cited periodically in this report. So he went through and read it and did a line-by-line critique, and, uh, it was, and it's, it's a pile of garbage. Uh, you know, the data is misinterpreted. Um, conclusions are cherry-picked. You know, bits of information are taken out of context uh, in many cases. Um, they drew the opposite conclusion of the citation that they were making. His own research was misrepresented badly. Um, so this was not, I mean, this was a, an exercise in creating noise and confusion and, and controversy. And it was an extremely reckless move from someone whose job it is to do a good job of explaining and, and engaging meaningfully and honestly with his community. Well, uh, we can get into this. Uh, I know it's going to sound like parsing words, but we can get into this uh, listening as opposed to hearing uh, when it comes to some of this information, because uh, uh, lots of people on city council listen, I'm not so sure so many of them hear. And and again, I go back to this perception that that uh, that that this uh, he feels the LRT project and those who are supporting it, it's all about Hamilton's image. 
Uh, and I, I don't really recall that message coming out. I mean, obviously, that's that's a side benefit to what's going on. But for heaven's sakes, that's way down the list when you start talking about economic developments, economic development growth, uh, land purchases, which sadly the provincial government's put a freeze on right now. But, I mean, oh, there, sure. there's there's the evidence is out there, and the evidence has been out there for quite some time. Oh, yeah. I mean, this LRT investment, it's about, about increasing the capacity and reliability of the main transportation hub across our city. It's about... Uh, creating uh, an economic condition for more investment in the kind of development that actually improves our bottom line and builds our tax base. It's about attracting jobs. It's about attracting people. Uh, it's about making the transit system work better for everybody. You know, And it's only the first line in a network of five rapid transit lines that's going to serve the entire city. You know, we, And we almost never talk about that. You're right. I mean, we focus so much, obviously, on this initial stage that I think an awful lot of people have assumed that that's it. All we're going to get is McMaster to Eastgate Square, and and, and that's going to be it. Uh, and and again, that comes back to this pol- political perception that so many people seem to have in this city of only thinking in four-year increments. In other words, from one election to the next. Uh, and this is a project that actually goes way beyond that. We haven't done much of that, and that's maybe uh, that that's bad on us that we haven't done much of it. But that doesn't mean we can't start. Oh, exactly. I mean, if you look at Ottawa, for example, um, they actually decided to build a bus rapid transit system back in the early 1980s because, um, you know, the, the transportation consultants of the time said, hey, you know, you can get rapid transit and it's a lot cheaper to build than LRT, uh, which is always appealing to politicians. So they decided to go with this BRT or bus rapid transit system. And uh, unfortunately, what happened is that it, it maxed out, right? So it is it can't keep expanding. And uh, and so they're now going through a very painful exercise of incrementally upgrading from LR- from BRT up to LRT, which if they had built that initially, they would still have huge capacity, you know, increase because you can run LRT vehicles down to you know three or four uh, minute headways between vehicles. You can carry you know you know 150, 200, 300,000 people um, an hour potentially, you know, at at the top end. It's all about how rapidly you run those vehicles. You know, right now. Um, we have along that corridor uh, enough existing transportation ridership that when LRT opens, we'll be the sixth busiest system in North America on opening day. So the ridership is there right now, and the potential for ridership to grow is enormous. You know, so we're in, in terms of the, the the technical argument for LRT, we're there today. Listen, there's another element to this that, and I know all, I've visited a family up in Ottawa many times and, and saw uh, the BRT system working, and, and it did work quite effectively. But there's an element to bus rapid transit uh, that I know you've written about, I've talked about, and even the proponents who say, no, it shouldn't be LRT, it should be BRT, uh, don't seem willing to bring to the table. And that's the fact that you need dedicated bus lines to make that system work. And look at what happened when City Council tried that as a pilot project. It lasted about an hour and a half until they got some complaints, and all of a sudden they scrapped the whole thing. I don't think they've got the courage to do BRT, even if that were the uh, the obvious choice for some people. No, and, and, and in fact, you're absolutely right. And what often happens is people who say, we should do BRT instead of LRT, all they're saying is, we shouldn't do LRT. BRT becomes the, the, the dodge. So yeah, it's, it's a fallback in- position, but they don't even understand what that means. You saw this happen in London, for example. They were having a debate, should we do LRT or BRT? And the um, people who didn't want to invest in transit said, no, no, we should do BRT, it's cheaper, it's cheaper. So they, they said, okay, we'll do BRT. Well, as the outcome of the last election they had, now their politicians are ratcheting down from BRT to essentially glorified express buses. And, and when, so when people say, we want BRT, really what they're saying is, we don't see this as a really important investment, we just want to throw a few more buses at the problem. 
which I find bizarre. A university town like London uh, doesn't seem to understand exactly what the people in that community need. Uh, and, and, and we're in the same situation here. I mean, I, I'd like to think that there's some visionaries on council. Uh, and I don't mean you forget about today for the sake of, of dreaming about tomorrow. But you've got to look down the road. And, and I thought we was turning that corner. Now I'm not so sure. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, again, I think most councillors most of the time are decent, reasonable people who are, who are trying to make the best decision they can. You know, they're conscious of uh, the kind of feedback they get, you know, from uh, certainly from their, their loud constituents. Um, you know, some, count, some, some neighbor, some uh, wards, I should say, have a lot more um, organized community engagement than others. You know, mm-hmm. so across the lower city, one of the reasons why the councillors tend to be more progressive on these things is that they can't uh, just speak for their constituents, right? Their constituents are already organized into neighborhood associations and various different groups. And so there's a real voice there that the councillors have to listen to. Um, you know, Councillor Whitehead um, has, has not been that supportive of meaningful community engagement in his ward. You know, he sits down at the mall and talks to people one and two at a time. And so because they're not organized, uh, he can essentially project whatever he wants onto his constituents, right? The silent majority. You know, I speak for them. And so you're not going to get a high level of, of um, decision-making when you are essentially treating your electorate as a blank slate. I, I Very quickly, i got about a minute or so left here, Ryan. Obviously, the new council has been sworn in. Uh, here we are with LRT again. We knew that was going to happen. Uh, I was troubled, frankly, on election night when I talked to a couple of the newly elected councillor elects at that time, uh, that they said, well, I need to get up to speed on this issue. And I figure, where have you been for the last three years? Uh, and I understand maybe they didn't even consider running for public office, but this is general information. And for somebody to say, okay, I'll wait till I'm sworn in and I'm going to decide to read about this and make up my mind. Uh, I'm a little nervous about that. I really don't want to have three steps back here. I thought we were progressing, and all of a sudden we we seem to have, first of all, put the brakes on it. Now, I know there's still work going on, but there are some counselors here that have to understand that, you know what, it's a pretty sharp learning curve here, and you better catch up. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I I think back to the 2016 uh, Ward 7 by-election when uh, then-candidate Donna Skelly said, you know, uh, I personally don't think it's the right thing to do, but I'm not going to go against a council decision already made. And then once she won, she immediately started actively undermining the LRT project, you know, meeting with LRT opponents. Um, You know, she and Councillor Whitehead crashed a staff community meeting where staff were trying to explain the LRT project and answer questions from from the public. And so what one of the things that does is it creates a culture of toxicity among staff where staff are afraid to do their job of explaining this project and answering questions from the public because they're afraid they're going to get attacked by their, their political leaders. And so this is part of the reason why so many people still don't understand this, is that we have had a terrible communications rollout because it's been hobbled by this politic. Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it was uh, just a couple of weeks ago, two Mondays ago, that uh, we were rocked by the news from uh, General Motors that they were shutting down not just the Oshawa plant, but a number of plants, four other plants, I guess it was, uh, south of the border. Uh, President Trump uh, reacted to that, as he does to everything. Uh, But a great deal of consternation, obviously, because of the economic impact that it's going to have, not just in those particular communities, but in the greater auto industry. Uh, and you got to wonder what, what's going to happen. What are going to happen to those plants? Are they going to retool them? We, so many questions. So uh, this weekend, along comes Elon Musk, uh, and uh, apparently he has, in an interview, expressed interest in those uh, soon-to-be-abandoned GM plants. 
uh, to start building Teslas. We know that market shares are up a little bit, but that much to make that kind of an investment? Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Uh, Elon Musk is going to be the savior of the auto industry and savior of these plants. Uh, uh, were you surprised by it? It was really just musing. I mean, this is not a business proposal at this stage. Well, first, let's, let's put this in context for your listeners. Uh, Mr. Musk was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and uh, Leslie Stahl, who conducted the interview, was primarily talking to him about his erratic behavior earlier this summer in July and August when at one point he, he was on a podcast uh, smoking marijuana, which in that place at that time was perfectly illegal to be doing, and then musing about different things. She also wanted to talk to him about the Securities and Exchange Commission who came after Mr. Musk for a tweet he made talking about taking his company private by buying the shares for $420 apiece, and then a few weeks later saying, oh, I was just kidding, I don't really have the money for it. And they said this isn't the way a chair of a company should be behaving. So they actually forced him out as chair of Tesla. That was really the purpose of the interview. So as she's going along, she asks, she says, by the way, we just had this story a couple of weeks ago about GM. Uh, you know, What are your thoughts? And he said, well, maybe we should buy one of those plants or maybe a couple of those plants. And in fairness, it's not an absolutely crazy idea. Tesla's current manufacturing facility is a former GM plant that he purchased. Uh, he uh, This was a plant that was owned jointly by GM and Toyota. They walked away from it in California, so he picked it up for, I think it was $43 million is what he paid for it back in 2011. He's done well enough at that plant that they actually have a second assembly line today housed in a tent, in a tent nearby. Uh, quite an amazing tent, but nonetheless a tent, a temporary structure. And so it does seem that if they are to meet all of these orders they're getting for Teslas, they really need some more bricks and mortar operations. Therefore, it's not a crazy idea. And also, you know, if he could buy it for something on that order, 43, 50, even $100 million, it would be a lot cheaper than Tesla building it from scratch. Having said that, though, this isn't like he'd spent any great amount of time deeply thinking about it, uh, you know, doing, doing things like this. He was just off-the-cuff remarks, and I think we in Canada, again, we're often so desperate for good news, we'll misinterpret those off-the-cuff remarks. Mr. Musk is famous for musing about a lot of things, many of which he never follows through. Well, yeah, we'll get into that in a second, but I mean, I understand what you're saying about the market shares, and it's not as if Tesla's going to skyrocket to the top, but for instance, I know somebody who wanted to purchase one, Marvin, and, and they were told, and this is just uh, anecdotal information, this is what an eight or nine month wait for delivery on these things. So, I mean, they're, they're taking their time building them, and I know that they're very proud of the product that they're putting out there, but they're not into the mass production unit like the other ones are just yet, and you got to wonder what that's going to do to their market share. Right. Well, the, the key word there was just yet. Um, Mr. Musk, for instance, last year at one point said we're trying to ramp up to 300,000 cars a year. That would be more than the GM plant in uh, uh, Oshawa was making. GM in its most recent year likely to be 100,000 Impalas. So 300,000 certainly would be economical for them to buy the facility. Mr. Musk's problem is he's not a production-oriented guy. He's, a, he's an ideas guy. And so when he comes out and says, well, 300000 then we all rush out to buy one of these things, and then we face this nine-month wait time, because what he wants to deliver versus what he can deliver are two quite different things. Uh, I, I had felt for some time that if they could get a more 
more of a car person in there. Let Mr. Musk be the technology guy tinkering away in the workshop or in the lab and get someone in there who can actually then translate the ideas into reality. They'd be well served. Uh, as it is now, it's, nothing has changed, Bill. Your friend is absolutely right. There's still a, an eight- to nine-month waiting list, not necessarily because the orders are so high, but because they're just so terribly slow at making cars. I think for this to be truly economical, they've got to ramp up production, get them out the door much faster. So to do that, obviously, you have to look at these sorts of facilities. But my understanding, and of course we don't even know all the details on this, is that when GM finally does shut the door on these plants, uh, and anybody were to purchase them, aren't they going to get is the four walls? I mean, they're going to strip those places, aren't they? Yeah, I would think to the greatest extent possible. The equipment inside, which is reconfigurable, reprogrammable, I would think GM is going to take a look at reallocating it among their existing facilities. Uh, this is a bit like if you remember here in Hamilton when uh, the Lakeport Brewing operation was sold to Labatt. We all went, oh, good, you know, Labatt's going to move in there and make beer. And instead, Labatt came in, stripped out most of the manufacturing equipment, put it at other places, and then left an absolutely empty shell here and didn't make any beer. It took a third party to come in, but they had to start from ground one. Same thing would happen with Mr. Musk. I, I'm pretty sure there might be a few things, you know, obviously the, they've got a, four walls, they've got a parking lot. They have the potential to put in equipment, and even that, the building lease is configured correctly for that kind of thing. But in terms of him getting an, an operational assembly line or even a quasi-operational assembly line, I doubt that would be what GM would leave him. Well, you, you talked about retooling, and, and then again, let's go down that hypothetical road for yep. just a couple of seconds. And even if it's not the Oshawa plant, any one of these other GM plants that, that are scheduled to be shut down, uh, I mean, this is a different technology. Can they can they use some of this stuff? Can they adapt this? I mean, to to build a Tesla is a little bit different than uh, than building. Well, I was going to say the Impala. Yeah. So you're you're not you're not wrong. Uh, but the whole idea about this uh, uh, today's assembly lines is that they are to be flexible manufacturing, meaning that the computers and the robots can be reprogrammed to do other things. They don't have to put you know, a spark plug in a, an engine, they can put some other device into the engine or, or build another part of the car altogether. So, you know, it can be done. Now, it normally takes six months to a year to reprogram all of this and line it all up, and then you have to do a few test runs to work out the bugs and the kinks. But they could be reconfigured. So he's not absolutely crazy in this at all. But I just worry that, um, and this, again, is quite famous, you know, normally a CEO of a company would be quite cagey in their responses, because every word they say get parsed by the market, and the market says, oh, I guess Musk wants to buy GM factories. I'm not sure I would take that away. He didn't rule out the idea, but it also didn't sound like he'd been actively pursuing anything or had put any proposal in front of Mary Barra, the CEO of GM. Well, uh, it's interesting to note the reaction to some of the uh, statements that Musk made, and especially when it came to this. I know Jerry Dice, the president of Unifor, is just saying, yeah, I'm not holding my breath. Oh. Well, isn't that, isn't that delightful? I was expecting the opposite from Jerry. He's been so desperate to keep uh, the plant open and keep jobs there that he would welcome him with open arms. And again, Mr. Musk, uh, you know, if he's willing to come in and if he's willing to have unionized workers, in the case of the California plant that he acquired, I believe the, the joint venture had a name like NIMO or something like that, N-I-M-M-O. Those workers were unemployed for nearly a year, but Tesla has brought many of the former GM workers in California back to work in their plant. This could be, if, if Mr. Musk was interested in taking the white hat and being a hero, this could be a very heroic move for him if he wanted to. But I'd also point out that uh, Tesla is a company in which the shares are traded. Shareholders, stakeholders have an interest in this. 
it isn't just Mr. Musk just throwing his own personal money around. Now it's a corporation where there are other shareholders at play. If the board were to properly assess this and properly consider this, and I'm sure knowing the Ontario and Canadian governments that we would have some, um, what word do I look for here, sort of financial incentives or, or low-interest loans to help with the transition, we would be thrilled to have a Tesla car company anywhere in Canada, let alone Oshawa. So this this could all be done, but we need him to be more serious than he was with Leslie Stahl. All right, but let's let's talk about venturing north of the 49th parallel here, okay? Uh, I know that a lot of people in the industry will tell us about how efficient the Oshawa plant is, and you know it, it's it's supposed to be one of the jewels, I guess, when it comes to auto manufacturing. But given some of the rhetoric coming out of the White House and and the the rather acrimonious discussions uh, about uh, the the new NAFTA deal that's yet to be ratified, of course. Uh, would Musk even risk something like that? Does he want to set up shop and, and invest lots, millions of dollars, obviously, into an Oshawa plant and then have to face things like tariffs and a number of other things? Would not the, the path of least resistance and simply say, no, I'm staying down here in the States? Well, so correct, absolutely correct. Everything you just said there is correct. With one, one little thing, though, is that Mr. Musk and Mr. Trump don't get along. This is often the case with some, some billionaires that uh, how you make your money and how I make my money is quite different. Um, so I think there is an opportunity to at least suggest to him, as we did with Mr. Bezos, uh, and I think I, I'll take him as word, Mr. Bezos, who was considering where to put Amazon's HQ2, did take a serious look at Toronto. But I'd always felt it was a, a little uphill battle because Mr. Bezos himself bought something called the Washington Post newspaper and had just built a multi-million dollar home in Washington. Therefore, I'm not surprised that HQ2 went to Washington rather than Toronto. But he did take a look. I think it's worth the conversation. I, I think a small investment of time and energy could pay off big. But no, I don't think Mr. Trump upsets him. Remember, Mr. Tesla's not looking just two years or three years down the road, but five or ten years down the road. By then, there'd be another president because you can only do two terms in the White House. Um, also, I think he is interested in uh, Canada's access to world markets, and he likes much what he's hearing from Justin Trudeau about world trade. And even if Tesla were to come here, remember that we signed a deal with the United States that as long as a certain number of cars were produced in Canada and shipped to the United States, there wouldn't be any tariffs involved. The level that we agreed to is above current production, and that would even include the production that we're losing in GM, so that would actually go down. If he took it back up and went a little above it, he really wouldn't run any risk of retaliatory tariffs. So I don't think, I don't think Trump's going to enter into the picture at all here. Well, there's always that concern about what policy is going to dictate and how this is going to happen. Uh, you, you mentioned about the fact that this is he's the visionary, okay? Uh, yep. Elon Musk is the... Uh, He's, he's the right side of the brain guy. Uh, you need somebody like a Lee Iacocca, I guess, if we want to go all the way back to the, the guy that rescued Chrysler back in the early 1980s. Uh, any of them kicking around, looking for work? Well, uh, well, there's there's two questions. That's one, is there any of them looking for work? And two, would any of them work for him? Uh, you know, again, I'm of the opinion that uh, even dyed-in-the-wool people might find a way to work with the very creative types, but that might not be their first inclination. They'd probably rather work with people more like themselves, the engineering types. Um, so, yes, certainly, absolutely. GM and other uh, companies have had some, uh, some people take early retirements, uh, 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 the, there's lots of very capable people around. You could even pluck one away from another company. You could take uh, take the president of GM Canada, who came here from Australia, where he had a lot of experience internationally. There are lots of those people around. But again, the question, would Mr. Musk, A, have the vision to hire them, and B, would he then give them the power? 
One of the problems that entrepreneurs have is they often want someone to manage the day-to-day operations, the the boring stuff, the stuff that they don't have any interest in, but then will they empower them? So if I'm the CEO of the company really in charge of running things, but Mr. Musk keeps interfering on a day-to-day basis, I'm not going to stay there very long. I need you to go away. You can think of the relationship that Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft, had with Bill Gates. They had a very simple deal. Bill, you stay in the lab, you invent new things, come up with toys, come up with things for us, and I'll run the plant, quote-unquote. And they worked very well together, but if you asked uh, uh, Mr. Gates about this, he, he would, his temptation on many days was to march into the office and tell, well, Steve, I wouldn't have done that that way, and I wouldn't do that that way, but that's not your job anymore. So he learned over time to back off, but temperamentally, Bill Gates is quite different than Elon Musk. So at this stage, based on the comments that he made during the 60 Minutes interview, I mean, this is an interesting story, and right. it's it's, it's kind of nice to, to muse about it a little while, but obviously he doesn't seem to be serious about it, and this may be a one-day story. We don't know about that, uh, which might, by the way, I, I would think uh, explain some of Jerry Dice's remarks when uh, he said he doesn't put a whole lot of weight into what Musk was saying. Uh, Dice is still of the opinion, and he's on the record again yesterday as saying, the only solution to Oshawa is General Motors ramping a production up there again at some point, hopefully in the near future. Uh, is, is he just, uh, you know, whistling Dixie here? Because, I mean, most people think that that's just not going to happen. Yeah, so I will say GM has been, um, shall I say, clever in their communications on this, Bill. The comment from everyone is, we have no product assigned to Oshawa uh, as of 2020, meaning that as they have planned what they're going to produce and where they're going to produce it, there's been nothing assigned uh, and therefore, that's why we're letting all the workers get a one-year notice that we're going to be letting them go at the end of 2019. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that plans don't change. They've said that part of this is to allow them to uh, think about self-driving vehicles and electric vehicles, but they don't have any of that product to make in 2020. Conceivably, conceivably, it's not absolutely crazy. Over the next 12 months, GM's plans could evolve some more, and they would say, okay, yeah, now we do have a product that we want to introduce to the market, but we're not going to build it until 2021 or maybe 2022. And so rather than uh, uh, just just uh, take all the pieces of the GM factory in Oshawa and put them away in storage or throw them away or whatever, we're just going to mothball the plant for a year or two and then retool. And by the way, if you can find a way to bridge yourself till then, we'll be glad to welcome you back and have jobs for you at that time. That That is a possibility. And uh, if GM had simply said we're trying to save money and bank it and we don't have any other things, but instead they've said we're trying to save money so that we can build these new kinds of cars, we just don't have them designed yet, it's not an absolutely crazy assumption that they might reopen at some point, but how long? And if you're a worker, you know, waiting four months is one thing. Waiting four years for GM is something quite different. The sooner that, again, we can have clarity on what GM's plans are with Oshawa, uh, is it simply a mothball? Is it a retooling? The better we'd all would be. Well, and, and just to put this in perspective, over the years uh, of the rather tumultuous uh, days of the auto industry here, I mean, the, the Ford Oakville plant, Marvin, has been on death's door more than once, and we thought, well, they're going to shut the doors on that. And, and you're right, before they actually get to that time, they say, well, but no, no, we've changed our minds. We're going to put something different in there now. Well, also keep in mind, Bill, that these decisions are predicated on uh, what we buy, what you and I buy at, on the showroom floor. And this all began with them making a simple statement that we are not buying those sedan cars, the Impalas, like we used to. Uh, used to do a million of them, make a million and sell a million, and now it's 100,000. 
conceivably, again, as consumer demand were to shift over the next few months, either they want the cars that they make in Oshawa or they make, want to make something else, and therefore they say, oh, okay, well, here's an opportunity. We've got this, this plant idling in, in Oshawa. Let's, let's do something with it. Any of that is possible because we consumers are fickle people. Our needs and wants are constantly evolving. Uh, so I, I just don't know, but I think I don't want to hold out false hope for people that there is some imminent white knight to ride over the hill here. GM made a very difficult announcement. You don't make these announcements lightly or trivially. You know, you, you realize you're affecting tens of thousands of workers across North America with this kind of an announcement. So, uh, you know, it isn't so much just to stand by. At this point, our best thinking is that plant is closing. I mean, the reality here to change customers, uh, you know, influence in, in what we want to buy, there's, well, it's probably a lot more, but the two that jumped to mind right off the bat for me uh, is all of a sudden, if, for instance, of combustion engines, if gasoline becomes so ridiculously expensive, I mean, right. if it doubles or triples overnight, yep. uh, people are going to say, I just can't do it. Leave this on the side of the road. I have to get something else. Or some new product comes out. And that comes back to the car companies. They, they develop something that catches our fancy and said, hey, i got to get me one of those. Yeah, we've talked before about the electric vehicles today being only 1% of the market, and that's primarily for two main reasons, the time it takes to charge them and the amount you can drive on a single charge. If those numbers were to suddenly change, if there was some magical breakthrough, it is possible to see things turn on a dime. My, my example of that, of course, is when CDs were introduced to replace vinyl albums. It was really just an 18-month transition from the old technology to the new track technology. It was absolutely incredible how fast that happened. Something like that is possible, either because the consumers, as you say, the price of gas goes up, or the company comes out with something magical, but we just don't see anything on the horizon. So other than that Hail Mary last-minute pass, I think people have to get used to the idea that, unfortunately for Oshawa, that plant is closing and there's just nothing imminent that's going to go into that space. Well, and there really hasn't been too many examples, have there, of a, a new vehicle, no. a new product that just, I mean, the K car, but to go back to the Iacocca example. Front wheel uh, drive, uh, which was part of the K car yeah. idea, the front wheel drive, uh, the magic wagons, the, that sort of half van, half, uh, half car kind of an idea, they, they took hold quite quickly. Uh, today, it's the crossover vehicles that are half SUV, half car. There's certainly demand for some of those, but we don't see anything that would, would come that would automatically say to GM, I've got to build that in Oshawa. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, McMaster, of course, has a pleasure. Always, th thanks so much for this today. We'll see. I mean, you know, <laughs> these things seem to change by the end of the day, so we'll just see what happens my, next. My only hope is I hope Mr. Musk wasn't smoking marijuana before he did that interview with Leslie Stahl. If there was truth to it, God bless. Exactly. Thanks again, Marvin. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, First Minister's meeting wrapped up, of course, last week. Uh, the Prime Minister and the Premiers uh, got together and accomplished, well, very little anyway. There's a lot of acrimony and, uh, uh, well, these guys just aren't very friendly. They got Alberta's got issues. Ontario certainly does have issues, and so did the East Coast. But uh, one of the things that did come out of that at that meeting, two of the provinces said they wanted the federal government to give a full analysis of the carbon tax measures and how it's going to impact Canadians, both economically and otherwise, uh, before the government moves on that, which is going to happen, obviously, at the end of this year. We'll talk about that just after 10.30 this morning. Speaking of which, uh, environmental issues, that is, uh, last week, uh, critics of the Ontario government raised some serious concerns about some new legislation that has been introduced, not passed yet, that they argue will open the doors to development in the Greenbelt. Uh, which has raised a great deal of controversy. Uh, you may remember that during the, f the provincial election campaign last spring, 
Uh, Doug Ford was caught on video talking to a bunch of developers saying, oh, yeah, we should open up parts of the Greenbelt so you guys can build stuff on there. Uh, there was such pushback on that at the time that he recanted, and even in their policy statement as they uh, formed their policies for the election. Uh, the conservatives, progressive conservatives, vowed that they would protect the, the Greenbelt in its entirety. Well, along comes Bill 66, uh, which is known as Restoring Ontario's Competitiveness Act. And among its targets is the Greenbelt Act. Yeah, I know. I know what they promised, but this is what they're doing. Bill 66 will allow municipalities to circumvent Greenbelt protections by enacting what they call open for business bylaws. Uh, and it's, it's rather complicated, but it's kind of a backdoor way to get what you want and, and go into the Greenbelt. A lot of folks are upset about this. Joining us to talk about this is Abhijit Mane, who is the deputy leader of the Ontario Green Party. He was a candidate in uh, Mississauga in uh, last or earlier this year, of course, in the provincial election. Abhijit, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, this is an example of uh, never mind what I said. This is what I'm going to do. That's right. And, you know, uh, the Greenbelt has uh, been such an important uh, part of Ontario, and it's been such a good international success story. It prevents urban sprawl. It, it's important for our food production, drinking water, um, and, and, and climate mitigation. And, and yet, Mr. Ford and his government is taking a sledgehammer to it, um, to all the protections around it, and it's blunt, and they want to eliminate 25% of it. I mean, that's one of their um, big promises made, promises broken, uh, uh, trend that's continuing. I, I mean, as you know, we all know the history. The Greenbelt's been in place since 19, or 2005, of course, the legislation that was put in by the McGuinney government. And and there have right. been some residents, and, and, and Hamilton included in that, as you know, that have had some right. concerns about some of the things. In other words, where some of the lines are drawn. But I don't know too many people that have been opposed to it on a, on a, on a perceptual basis that, yeah, this is something that we need to do. And as you, you've already talked about, it's protecting natural resources, and that's a good thing. Uh, this this is really blowing the whole thing up. Absolutely, and you know it's it's something that that not only protects our our food and our water, but it also protects against the entire uh, you know the big storm that's that's coming, which is climate change. It it's uh, it, it's something that protects against flooding, against storms, uh, and it's it's a very important component of the GTHA um, uh, climate mitigation uh, system. And so uh, to completely pave it and, and build it up for development is just uh, incredibly irresponsible. Uh, irresponsible. Um, and the whole argument that we need to do it for housing doesn't kind of make sense either because only 20% of all uh, land that was allotted for development has been used. So there still is so much more land that we can use for uh, solving our housing issues. Well, and we've had that discussion on the program over the last little while, and I understand uh, that there is an affordable housing shortage, and, and you know, part of the solution to that, obviously, is more housing stock, build more houses. We get that. that right. That'll help with high prices. It'll help with affordability. At the same time, it's going to put a roof over an awful lot of people's heads. But your point is well taken, because we did that analysis here in the city of Hamilton when there was some yeah. speculation about maybe, you know, going into the green belt to do this, we have more than enough land for new development over the next 15, 20 years uh, without touching the green belt. So this is, uh, I, I guess the question everybody's asking at this stage is why do we even need to do this? Right. And uh, a lot of it seems to be driven by um, a bit of, you know, um, uh, 
the the premier's ties with uh, maybe his de- developer friends because this just opens up the play game uh, for uh, him to uh, for developers to basically lobby municipalities now and individually target councillors and municipalities that they want to uh, op- open up for uh, development. So this uh, and then which will which will then be up for. Um, um, acceptance of that application by the fed, by the provincial government, which will obviously say yes to it. So it seems like a very petty and a very um, um, a very a, a, sm- a very small minded uh, approach to um, uh, solving our housing crisis. They're taking a, a kind of a backdoor approach to this too, aren't they, Abhijit? When you look at uh, right. the, and again, this is only a proposal at this stage, but it's out there. It is Bill sixty six. It hasn't been voted right. on yet, and, you, and of course, the house is is gone now until mid February. But so nothing's going to happen on this anytime soon. But what they're doing is is they're saying, look, we're not touching the green belt at all. And, and and I guess on on one point on one level maybe that's true, but what they're doing is giving the municipalities uh, the the possibility of actually encroaching onto the green belt as long as they make application to the province um, uh, with uh, well open for business. So he basically says here that uh, smaller municipalities would simply have to show the Ford government that their green belt development maybe it's a factory, it could be a mall, it could be anything would create 50 jobs. And if it, if it does so, bingo, that gets rubber stamped. If it's a larger city, it would be 100 jobs. And if you can show that, then all of a sudden right. they say, yeah, go ahead, knock yourselves out, knock those trees down. That's okay with us. Uh, so th- right. they're not doing it themselves, but they're giving the municipalities the option to do that. Right, and and exactly. And then they're doing it under the guise of, oh, look, there's more municipal freedom now. We're giving municipalities better autonomy. But uh, really, yeah, what it is is an attack on um, on our on our um, livelihoods. And, and the whole job argument doesn't make sense either. I mean, sure, we need jobs, but, I mean, why would we need, uh, why don't we invest more in uh, cleaner jobs and greener jobs, which is a $26 trillion global economy. Uh, so tapping into that would be be a much better um, uh, fiscally more prudent solution than uh, you know going after uh, the protections uh, uh, of our of our green belt um, uh, and additionally also the um, the green belt is also something um, that started off with um, uh, un- under the last uh, conservative government under um, uh, the Walkerton tragedy, uh, and so you know those those kind of things don't need to repeat now, uh, especially now that the uh, Ford government has gotten rid of the environmental commissioner. There's no really balance or check on the government to make sure that uh, these protections are kept. Well, let's talk about uh, going back. This is kind of a throwback to uh, to what happened pre nineteen ninety five, and I'm glad you brought that up about water quality protections because one of the, com- right. the components of Bill sixty six, uh, and I'm sure most listeners don't know this because, like I say, they're not doing a whole lot of talking about this right now. Uh, they just want right. to say that we're open for business. But this a, a particular aspect of this uh, basically uh, would exempt developers from the rules designed to protect wildlife and municipal water supplies, including the Clean Water Act. Now, And That's as right. you point out, that was the act that was established after the Walkerton tragedy. So in other words, Bill 66 would wipe out those protections. We'd be right, right back where we were under the Harris government with no protections and the possibility of a repeat of Walkerton. Not suggesting it's going to happen, but it just increased right. the possibility of something like that happen again. With a stroke of a pen, they've simply taken us back to those days. 
Absolutely. And it, it jeopardizes the Great Lakes Act, it jeopardizes the Clean Water Act, the Lake Simcoe Act, the Oak Ridge's Moraine. So, I mean, you know, these are all our, our precious water resources that uh, are essential to all Ontarians uh, to leave to lead a, a very healthy and happy life. And if we get rid of those protections, then, yeah, who's to say that there's not going to be um, another tragedy in the waiting? I mean, there was the whole E. coli uh, outbreak on the, um, in, the, in the lettuce, the romaine lettuce, as of recently, and we don't want a repeat of that uh, same kind of um, uh, panic and hysteria that, that happened uh, uh, in, the, in the 90s and, and more recently uh, to happen in Ontario. We, we need to make sure that our citizens are protected, and that's one of the biggest responsibilities of government, and this government is, is failing miserably in that regard. Do you get the sense that we're really kind of reverting back to, and I don't just mean the 1990s, but I'm talking about a, a, an uglier time when the mindset used to be, well, if you want a good economy, the, the environment has to suffer, that you can't, you can't be green and profitable at the same time, that, that if you're pro-business, you have to be anti-green. That, that seems to be the attitude of this government. Right, and it's it's unfortunate because as as I mentioned earlier, the green economy is a global twenty six trillion dollar economy, and if we if we manage to tap into that, we would be one of the first innovators and leaders in in Canada um, in in doing so. So uh, let's track the trajectory of this government. They first got rid of the. Uh, cap-and-trade system and all the uh, benefits that we got from that uh, system, uh, including the rebates and the other uh, initiatives that it funded. Um, then they got rid of the entire uh, the environmental commissioner so that no one could keep a check on, on their policies. And now they're getting rid of all these protections, uh, such as the Green Belt Act. And so there's a clear trend in this government, uh, which is an attack on our environment and an attack on everything green. So, um, and it's a completely fallacious argument because as we're seeing uh, globally that countries that are investing in renewables and in investing in green jobs are doing better, including in our own country in BC, which still has, a, which, which has carbon pricing, which has all these green initiatives, and the economy is booming. What can we do about this? I mean, this, like I say, this is a majority government. I mean, if they want to swing this thing through the legislature, they can go finish second, third reading, bingo, bango, send it to committee, uh, and they could do this. And there's not a whole lot legislatively that we can do about this. But but right. talk to us about a strategy. I mean, that's not, nothing's going to happen until at least mid-February, so we've got some time to play with here. Right. Uh, yeah, one of the things we can do is put pressure on those PC MPPs. I mean, uh, this, uh, a lot of the PC MPPs in this government uh, don't really resist Mr. Ford's plans, but we've seen some cracks appearing, uh, especially with uh, um, MPP Simard now, with the French language issue. Uh, so there is a, a way to, 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 you know, oppose Mr. Ford whilst being a principled conservative as well. And, and I, the entire idea of conservatism is about conservation and this is the one of the biggest conservation issues uh, in the province so i think true conservatives and um, um, and and progressives should band together and appeal to their MPPs, uh, especially if you have a PC MPP, contact them and let them know that I voted for you, uh, but I do not agree with this. And if you continue with this, then in the come next election, you're going to be in big trouble. This this is, a, and again, a conversation we've had many, many times before, but I think what's going on here, actually, but not just this policy, but a few others, 
uh, is part of a greater problem about the the mistrust that the population generally has for politicians. And 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 I know I know that we hear this all the time. I know you've probably heard that when you were knocking on doors in the election that oh you hey, guys right. you guys are all the same. You know you say one thing and you never do it once you get in there. And 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 right. it's basically a myth. I mean I've I've known politicians at all three levels of government and. 95% of them are, are well-meaning, dedicated people that do the best they can. That doesn't mean they can keep every promise, but there's usually a rationale for it. But the 3 or 4% that simply say, I'm going to say whatever it takes to get elected and then do whatever the heck I want once I get in there, it casts a, a bad light on, on every elected official. And that's what's happening here. That's what Ford is doing. Absolutely. And and as we remember from the June election, there was that video that was leaked of Mr. Ford talking to developers in a secret meeting, and immediately he backtracked. Um, on it after the backlash, but he was basically just buying time and he was uh, essentially buying votes, right? Because uh, he was uh, saying something and then he was, he obviously did something uh, completely different. So yeah, that does, that does sully the name. Um, and one, you know, one of the reasons that I joined the Greens was because we wanted to do politics differently. And, and this kind of rhetoric and these kind of actions uh, just make our job that much harder because it causes a deficit of trust between the public and uh, the politician. And also it, it just makes people apathetic and, and sort of, you know, um, uh, a little, a little jaded because then, you know, if, if, these are the issues that are being reported, and the 90% of politicians who are actually trying to do something that don't get reported on, then people are only noticing the, you know, the few bad apples. And so that does sully uh, the name of the profession, unfortunately. Abhijit, uh, thanks so much for the time today. Obviously, we're going to continue to talk about this over the next couple of weeks and months, and we'll see how the government responds when they, uh, they get back to work in February. But I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Take care. Abhijit Manet, who is the deputy leader of the Ontario Green Party. Uh, this is legitimate. And, and, you know, don't start dismissing people that are concerned about this as just tree huggers. The, the environment is important to us. We know that. And we know that when we start chopping down trees and clear-cutting, that it has an impact on, on where we live. I mean, it means more flooding. It means all sorts of other problems. I mean, we create a lot of the mess that we find ourselves in these days by not being visionary and, th and clear-thinking about the impact that we have on the environment. And uh, like I say, you may not have agreed with all the things that happened with the Green Belt or where it is, or et cetera, but uh, it's something that needs to be done and uh, something that other parts of the world, by the way, are following and saying, look, we need to, to take Ontario's lead on this. And now you've got a government that's basically saying, no, you want to build there? Knock yourself out. It's wrong. It's, it's the wrong attitude. And it's going to come back and bite us, just like Harris taking away the, uh, the, 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 the restrictions about uh, water quality, et cetera. And, and we'll lo and behold, Walkerton. He didn't cause Walkerton, but he certainly created the environment for something like that to happen. And I thought we were smarter that we'd learn from stuff like this and not repeat those mistakes. Apparently not. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.